Well, we are in a series on the Gospel of Luke, and last week we considered the first half of 5, 27 through 39, which is really all of one piece. It's one scene, and we're going to revisit a few things uh, from last week and then add the second section to it. So we're going to pick it up, chapter 5, beginning again in verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new for he says the old is good. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together to meditate and think through your word. And to that end, we pray that your spirit would be among us to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and feet that would follow you. We pray that especially as we come to the Lord's Supper that we might see Jesus and we might indeed recline at table with him as he has invited us to do. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we looked at Jesus calling Levi, that is Matthew as he's more commonly known, uh, to follow Jesus. And Matthew was a tax collector, which meant he was a traitor to his people because he, as an employee and really an extension of the Roman Empire, engaged in the legalized theft of his people, and he was in turn much hated, like all tax collectors, by the Jewish population, and it's not hard to see why that might be. Even so, Jesus called Matthew from his disreputable life of greed and exploitation and theft to a life in God through him. And we can see that Matthew genuinely repented by the fact that he immediately left his job and threw a great feast for Jesus, and this was on the Sabbath. And so uh, this was most likely akin to a Seder uh, type meal. It also has echoes back to how Abraham threw a feast for God at the Oaks of Mamre. And included in the guest list were, were other tax collectors. But it's safe to assume that Peter, James, and John, who were all newly following Jesus, new disciples, were there alongside Jesus in this motley Uh, group of people. So it's Jesus, Peter, James, John, brand new, I mean brand new disciple Matthew and a bunch of 
tax collectors. So it's, it's, <laughs> it's hard to tell just how close the Pharisees and scribes were uh, to the meal, though it's safe to presume from their criticisms of Jesus that they would not have eaten with such people. So the presumption is that they, they could not merely see into the home, you know, almost like they're peeping toms looking through you know, glass. That's, that's not what's going on there, but were actually close enough uh, to the meal that they could interact with Jesus as he reclined at table. So it's much more akin to, say, an open-air restaurant or something along those, those lines. We read that they, they asked Jesus' disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So they aren't directly attacking Jesus yet, although that's going to quickly change. They're attacking his inexperienced disciples, which is a move similar to what Satan does in the Garden of Eden by attacking Eve instead of Adam, who was entrusted with the word. Remember, Adam was the one given the word. He was the one who was supposed to teach his wife and in turn guard her with this word. The difference here is that unlike passive Adam, who left Eve to defend herself, Jesus defends his disciples. But the Pharisees and scribes uh, question, their question indicates that they didn't see, see Matthew's actions or really any of the disciples' actions as consistent with what true godly repentance look like, which tells you what they think about Jesus himself. After all, the table is a mixed crowd, to put it mildly. Matthew repented, but that doesn't mean every tax collector there had repented or had left everything to follow Jesus. There's a decent chance a good number of them are there just to have a great time. Now remember, in the previous section, Jesus had forgiven the paralytic sins, and in turn, to show the Pharisees and scribes that he possessed the authority to do that, he completely and instantly healed that man. In other words, the one who can heal the body is also the one who can atone for sins and forgive them. So this moment with Matthew at this feast, it piggybacks onto the previous moment with the paralytic. And again, the forgiveness of sins is central to the scene. So in answer to his opponents, Jesus says, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So clearly Jesus compared himself to a physician, but the language he uses doesn't merely get at physical disease in the, the modern kind of medical sense of how we tend to understand such things. No, the, the language he uses uh, points to a larger idea that he's come for those who have something deeply wrong or even evil within them. It's why he both forgives and heals the paralytic, in fact, in that, that order. And the man's moral standing before God and the loss of his body, they're both symptoms of the same overarching problem of sin. So also here, Jesus' call to Matthew addressed something deeply wrong with him, which his work as a tax collector is a symptom of that problem. And that evil is something that only Jesus can heal. It's why Jesus made the comparison between the work of a physician to calling Matthew to repentance. Now, in response, the Pharisees and scribes said, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, 
and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Notice, this is a statement. It's not a question. It's not a question. They didn't say, why don't your disciples fast and pray? Or, why are you feasting right now? No, this is a judgment. This is a judgment, and there's real cunning in their remark. So even as John the Baptist rejected groups like the scribes and Pharisees, as a brood of vipers, no less, uh, which is really, he's saying, they're people in league with the serpent of Genesis 3. That is, they're in league with Satan. That's how John saw them. The Pharisees and scribes, knowing what John thinks about them, because they heard him say it, tie themselves to John and his disciples in order to form a witness against Jesus and his disciples. Remember, Luke, from the very beginning of his gospel, has paired John the Baptist and Jesus together. Not only were they cousins, John the Baptist was the herald for the coming of Jesus. And here the Pharisees were saying, looks like John the Baptist is with us. Something that John would absolutely reject if he was there. But in the sense that they held to old covenant practices, well, they were actually right. It's a half-truth, though, designed to make it appear that John and Jesus are opposed to one another. Causing division among brothers is not just a tactic for Facebook. It is a standard tactic of Satan. And this is in the realm of speech that God hates. Here's Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. It says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. So in due time, the Pharisees and scribes in the united front against Jesus would commit, commit every single one of those things out of a misplaced sense of self-righteousness. So the Pharisees masterfully, or perhaps more accurately, deceitfully, pair themselves with John the Baptist, conveniently overlooking recent history as if they are in agreement. They both pray and fast. That is, they're both engaged in godly practices but Jesus' disciples, they don't pray or fast. No, they eat and drink like gluttons, like sinners, like pagans. And in this moment, they appear to be right. You know, Matthew repents, and soon after, a massive party is thrown, and there's Jesus right in the middle of it. It's, it's like the conflict in Luke 15 when more and more tax collectors and sinners were drawing close to Jesus and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled or really they condemned Jesus for it. And Jesus in response to their grumbling told this parable. He says, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy 
in heaven, over one sinner who repents, than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus feasted with tax collectors because one lost sheep of Israel, in this case Matthew, had repented, and this feast in Galilee, thrown by a repentant tax collector in honor of Jesus, was being joined by angelic rejoicing in God's throne room, though clearly the Pharisees would beg to differ. And in God's view, repentance is no little thing. And when we see someone genuinely turn to Christ, we should rejoice because it is a miracle every single time. However, contrary to how the Pharisees saw things, it is not righteous behavior or the adoption of godly practices that comes first. It is the change of heart that comes first, and only then does the fruit of the Spirit grow in a person's life over time. And to insist on, on the opposite, that godly behavior comes first, as if Christian maturity is what is required to come to God, is not merely legalism. It's to embrace the same disposition of what is on offer with Islam, as if holiness is not a gift from God. It is something we bring to God and hopefully he accepts. So every time you hear someone say, what are you going to do to redeem yourself? Or perhaps in a, a sports setting, way to redeem yourself on that one. You're hearing the spirit of Antichrist. That's how deep that goes. Well, in response, Jesus says, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Now, Jesus is referring to at least two things here. First, Israel was thought of, and, 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 and the metaphors for them, in many ways. For example, at the Exodus, God refers to Israel as his firstborn son. But one of the most important ways God thinks of his relationship to Israel is that she is his bride. She is his bride. So, for example, what happens in Exodus 19, which is the Ten Commandments, is actually a marriage ceremony. That's how it's pictured. And those, those Ten Commandments are, are basically wedding vows. And for good reason, then, Israel throughout the Old Testament is often depicted as an unfaithful bride, to put it mildly, with Ezekiel 16 being one of the most vivid depictions of her unfaithfulness. So Jesus likening himself to a groom is to put himself in the same position of Yahweh on Mount Sinai. So he's declaring his divinity right then and there. And that's a brief little statement. Jesus is the way by which God has chosen to dwell with his people as their God and their king and their husband. So, for good reason, the end of the book of Revelation depicts the coming together of Jesus and his people as the wedding feast of the Lamb. So this moment in Matthew's house, look forward to and anticipated that event, just as our celebration of the Lord's Supper today does that very thing. But feasting also indicates table fellowship with God. And the people who are fasting are clearly not eating at God's table particularly as fasting is a sign of repentance for sin. So just think of Nineveh and how the whole city fasted 
in response to Noah's preaching that in 40 days, you're going to get hammered. In light of Israel's history up to this point, well, guess what? Fasting actually made sense because the people of God had repeatedly broken fellowship with God. But now with the dawning of the Son of God, what was lost with Adam and repeatedly rejected by Israel as God's bride was being restored. It was being restored by Jesus. But as Jesus made clear, there would come a time when his disciples would fast because they had lost the groom. Jesus was, was telling his opponents and disciples alike in, in somewhat of a veiled fashion at this point, and he'd be much clearer as time goes on, that his death, while distant on the horizon, it's coming. And at that time, there would be a time of mourning and weeping. But soon after, that mourning and weeping was turned into joy with his resurrection and his ascension. And as the book of Acts makes clear... The, the people of God, in response, gathered often to feast together in celebration of the Lord Jesus Christ and the inauguration of his kingdom and the new creation. So the Wednesday night potluck meal is in keeping with the new creation. It's a good practice that churches have done. Israel's husband, you see, had come. God himself in Christ, and in turn, table fellowship with him has been restored. I mean, who would want to restrict or minimize the invitation from the king to come and eat? That's Jesus' point. Now, Jesus, in turn, to, to, to ratchet it up a bit, told them a single parable with multiple overlapping images. The first image was of, of someone uh, tearing a piece off of a new garment and putting it on an old garment. So it's, don't think of this as like a clean cut with, with scissors and it's not a ready-made patch. It's the tearing or, or ripping of a new garment. So just imagine, I don't know, a dress being ripped, right? That's, that's the image. You just ripped it from the collar or something like that and then being sewn onto an old dress. I mean, the obvious result is that well, it ruins the, the new dress, and the ripped-off piece from the, the new dress is not going to go with, with the old dress. It's, it's going to look out of place. It's not going to help whatsoever. Now, the second image involves wine and is similar to the first idea. You can't put new wine into old wine skins without both busting the old wine skins and, in turn, losing the new wine. So while we do not use wineskins, you, you can get the idea and the concept at hand. So old wineskins are not reusable. They're not reusable. They have their time and their place, and then they must be discarded. So in both cases, you either have you know, an old garment or old wine or a new garment and new wine, but you can't have both. You can't have both. You have to choose between the old and the new, and the old, well, it's soon going to become obsolete. Now, the third image is a warning to his opponents. Jesus said, And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, The old is good. So up to this point in Luke's gospel, Luke's been beating the drum, and he's going to do it all the way through his gospel, that with Jesus, the new creation, and in turn, the new covenant of Jeremiah 31 has shown up. And Jesus himself has proclaimed that in him, 
The day of Jubilee has arrived and has demonstrated this through healings and exorcisms and the forgiveness of sins, that the new creation is here. It is breaking into the world. So his point with the first two images is that the old covenant under Moses was passing away. It's not fully over yet. After all, earlier in chapter 5, he told the leopard to keep the Levitical law and make an offering in the temple. And Jesus himself keeps the law his entire life. But even so, the old would soon give way to the new. And it's not as if the old covenant under Moses with the Levitical system was bad. You can hear Christians say that sometimes. It was not bad. It wasn't. It was, in fact, very good. Jesus himself kept that law. He quoted the Old Testament extensively because that was the only scripture they had at the time. And David found the teaching and instruction contained in Torah to be a light unto his feet. And rightly so. It's why we still consider the Old Covenant, that is the Old Testament, to be the very word of God. But just as those living in the 1980s with their hi-fi stereos, their VCR, and their power locks and windows in their cars. Not just the, uh, remember? How they could not possibly imagine what we take for granted today in terms of satellite radio, cell phones, 60-inch flat-screen TVs, and bigger. So, too, this generation of Israelites could not imagine what the new covenant would actually look like. And when they came face-to-face -face with it in the person of Jesus, the Jewish leadership, you know, the self-appointed shepherds of Israel, resisted what seemed to them anyway to be dangerous and radically new. But their rejection isn't the sort of uh, alienation or the confusion that comes with older generations encountering new technology or, or, or new music. That's not music. I know what good music is. No, it's, it's not that at all. This is, as Jesus frames it, a decision of whether to remain in covenant with God or not. That's a very different thing. The old was passing away, and the new had come, just as God promised it would come. And apart from the new, there is no life with God. The problem, however, as Jesus puts it, is that once people have enjoyed the old wine, they don't want new wine. Because the old wine tastes very good to them. So like with modern wine connoisseurs, ancient people knew that really good wine took time to develop. Right? The process of cultivation, just cultivating a good grape and good soil is lengthy in itself, but you had to bottle it and store it and give it time to come to maturation. That, that's nothing modern. That's the way wine has always worked. So old wine, as everybody knows, is the good wine. Well, up to a certain point, right? Eventually, the old wine gives way to deterioration and just becomes like vinegar. New wine, in contrast, as everybody knows, is not good. You gotta put it away. You got to give it time. And yet consider Jesus' first public miracle at the wedding in Cana in John chapter 2. And the, by the way, it's not a coincidence that Jesus does this miracle at a wedding. 
When the wine ran out, if you remember the, the story, which was a, a huge faux pas, at the urging of his mother, Jesus instructs the servants to take six big jars used for purification, that is, ritual washings, not unlike what priests would do before entering the temple, but people by this point would do it before a meal or they would wash people's feet when they came in their house. So it's kind of an extension of what people have been doing in the temple. And they turned a huge amount of water into wine. By some estimates, nearly 180 gallons of water into wine. I don't care how big the party is, that's a lot of wine. It's a lot of wine. So the question is, why? Why so much wine? Why such an extravagant show of hospitality? Well, it's a sign, it's a symbol that the Old Covenant was giving way to the new. From purity washing to table fellowship with God, and God was giving bountifully. He was overflowing with generosity. And God often describes Israel in the Old Testament as his vineyard. And in one of Jesus' most damning parables in Matthew 21, he compares Israel again to God's vineyard with a wine press right in the middle of this property, which was an allusion to the temple. And he compares Israel's leadership to tenants who refused to give the owner of of the vineyard, that is God, the fruit of the vine, and in turn killed the servants the owner sent to them, which was an allusion to the history of the prophets, and even the owner's son that was sent to them to, to collect the fruit, well, they killed him too. The man in charge of the feast in John chapter 2, the, the, the maitre d' of sorts, not knowing what Jesus had done, commented that usually the good wine was brought out first when the guests have, and after that when the guests have freely partaken, then the cheap stuff, then the new stuff is rolled out. And it's presumably because at that point they can't tell the difference. But Jesus had brought out the best wine last. Last. The best wine is not the old wine. Though what had been served up to that point, the old wine, was very good. The best wine is the new wine that Jesus served. And when he serves it, he serves it in abundance. And so the warning to the Pharisees and the scribes is that they have tasted the old wine and they found it to be good. But they're satisfied with it. And that's a problem. But like an old garment or an old wineskin, eventually it will become obsolete. So their choice is not merely between religious practices, and it's not between, say, using a VCR versus Netflix. It's between the way God had provided for Israel in the past that was itself dependent on Jesus for its fulfillment in the new covenant. So the Levitical sacrificial system, as good as it was, and again, it was instituted by God and was very good, It found its meaning, and we've talked about this in the past, and its efficacy depended upon the one that all those sacrifices pointed forward to, which is Jesus himself. And yet, they rejected the very person that made the Levitical system work. That's why Jesus so often speaks of the current generation that he preached to, in particular, the Jewish leadership 
that opposed him in the same terms that God spoke of the generation that came out of Egypt that refused to enter the promised land. They were faithless and wicked. That's Deuteronomy 32. The generation that witnessed the Passover and all those events in Egypt longed to go back to Egypt. They grumbled against God, just like the Pharisees and scribes grumbled. It's the same language. They grumbled against Jesus and refused to accept the gift of the land that God was giving them. But here, the Pharisees longed to hold on to the old wine of Moses and refused to accept the gift of new and better wine, life itself, and Jesus. Now, the beauty of this moment for us because we're not Pharisees, we're not living in that generation. The beauty of this moment for us is that Jesus is still offering the same gift of himself to us. The same offer that was, was on, uh, given to, to Matthew is given to us too. It's given to us too. It's a gift. And you don't receive it because you've demonstrated your ability to perform the godly practices. Now, to be sure, prayer is important. It's important. And guess what? Fasting still has its place. But what brings you into the kingdom of God is his invitation to life in his son. Jesus, the groom, is still offering table fellowship. He's still handing out invitations to the wedding. The new has come. The old has passed away. And the only thing required of you, like Matthew, is to receive the gift. Receive the gift. Repent, which simply means turn to Jesus and come and eat. Well, let's pray as we enter into our Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, we thank you that our life with you is not dependent on our holiness. It's not dependent on what we can bring to you, or what we can bring on offer. If it were, none of us could come. No, our life is fully dependent on Jesus Christ and what he has done for us in atoning for our sins and his resurrection, which we look forward to with our own bodies and our hearts and our minds. And we give you thanks that he has been ascended on high, is ruling over all things now. He is with us in this time through the Spirit. And we pray his blessing now as we enter into the Lord's Supper. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.